You're listening to Real Estate Real Fast. Each episode, we discuss all things real estate, whether that's strategies for investors, ways the average homeowner can maximize profits when selling their home, or understanding market trends and more. Real Estate Real Fast is brought to you by ListingSpark, automated software that takes you through the complete home selling process and sells your home faster, safer, and at a fraction of the cost. So we are officially live for episode five of Real Estate Real Fast. I'm your host, Aaron Gistel. I am the uh, broker and co-founder here at ListingSpark. So ListingSpark is a technology-driven real estate brokerage. Uh, we're located here in the Austin area, but we service all over Texas. Um, we have sold over 5,000 homes and, and done over $1.2 billion worth of real estate sold. And so the point of this podcast is to just talk about all things real estate. So I'm super excited for our guest today. We have uh, Ellen Steele on. She's a top producing agent. Just in the last 12 months alone, she sold over $10 million in real estate and a expert here in Austin and, and somebody that I think is perfect to talk to about what's going on in the real estate market right now. So I'm going to do a quick intro. Ellen, tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your business. Sure. Um, so I have, have been in real estate for about five years. Previous to that, I worked in the school district as a school psychologist. Um, and so made the transition over a couple of years ago, full-time. Um, I live out here in the Lake Travis area. My kids go to Lake Travis schools. Um, I've got five kids between high school and elementary. Um, and we stay very busy with Boy Scouts and sports and, and family activities. Um, we love living out here by the lake. We've got a boat. Um, spend lots of time outside. We are just really happy with the community out here. Um, but I do sell real estate all over the Austin area. In the past year, I've sold homes in Bastrop and Salado, Johnson City, um, just kind of all over the place. Um, you know, I, I love the different areas, different parts of town are just so different from each other. So it's nice to be able to go around um, different parts of the city. Yeah. Yeah, well, we're uh, we're super excited to have you on. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Um, so again, the point of today is obviously the, the big buzzword around what's going on in real estate right now is, are we in the middle of a bubble? Is the market crashing? Um, what's going on? And so as somebody who's a very active uh, real estate agent, realtor uh, here in Austin, I, I just thought you were the perfect guest for me on and kind of talk shop. So to jump right into it, um, you know, we've noticed obviously the market has changed pretty quickly. What's been your experience so far with our new normal, we'll call it? Yeah, so it it's tough um, on pricing houses. You know, you what we've seen when when buyers are coming in, they are taking any any projects that need to be done, anything that they see, they're just subtracting that off of the list price. Um, and so, pricing a house if it's not perfect with amazing features, um, updated white kitchen, um, you know, beautiful countertops. Um, buyers have been offering less, um, which is frustrating for sellers. Um, and so I'm, I'm recommending to my sellers to complete any projects that you have to do, um, painting, trim, kitchen, you know, light updates in the kitchen if you can. Um, bathrooms are also super important. Outdoor living is also a big area that people are looking at right now, you know, an inviting spot to sit outside, maybe a, a fire pit or an outdoor fireplace. 
Um, and then even with all of that offers maybe coming in below list price um, or, you know, buyers are offering to cover the closing costs like they were when the market was busier. Um, buyers are taking more time to think about houses that they're putting in offers on. They've got so many more houses to choose from at this point. Um, it's frustrating if you're the second choice house on a lot of different buyers, you know, um, you just have to set your listing apart to be that first choice house. Um, investors, I think, are are waiting to see if we're at the bottom or waiting to see where the bottom is. Um, and so I've, I've seen a little bit of pullback from investors. Um, first time home buyers are, are getting more of an opportunity to enter the market. Um, the rates are higher, but the house prices have gone down a little bit. And, you know, if you're willing to adjust your expectations a little bit, um, home buyers can definitely find an amazing opportunity right now. I, I think that's all fantastic advice. I, I agree a hundred percent with all that. I, I feel quasi fortunate that I guess this is technically my second uh, market cycle or market correction to go through. So um, we're, we're kind of in the shock and awe phase right now for home sellers from what I have experienced. And what I mean by that is, you know, we're just coming off um, probably the strongest year uh, in real estate for really a, an entire group or, or set of generations. I mean, last year was the best year in real estate I can remember in almost 20 years of selling real estate. And I think sellers are really having a tough time adjusting to the new market. And I, and I think uh, you hit the nail on the head on a couple of those things. So I think making sure the house is 100% show ready is hugely important. You only get one crack at a first impression. And I mean, a year or two ago, you could list a house and you could have a bunch of punch list items that weren't done yet. And you could probably get away with taking photos with your iPhone and throw it up. And we had such a shortage and everything was going with multiple offers. You could get away with almost anything. And we had a lot of bad behavior from both sellers and frankly, a lot of realtors and listing agents who you know, could just get away with not doing a really high quality listing and still selling that house. And that's just not the case anymore. So I think being over-prepared as a seller is super important. You have to stand out. Um, and I think as buyers, you can't be afraid to just pull the trigger and make offers, even if you don't know or think it might get accepted. So for example, a year ago, a buyer wouldn't even try to make an offer at or under list price because they just felt like it was going to be a big waste of time. And it was almost like they were having, um, you know, PTSD trying to just find a house and every future home they would buy. It's like they would start getting more and more aggressive and pay more over asking and pay for more closing costs. And now it's kind of the opposite. You know, you're getting buyers that are, it's now their turn to do all the negotiating. And so I think as a buyer, you should be, you should be making an offer that you feel is compelling enough for you and, and worth it for you. And then as a seller, you've got to just treat it less as an emotional sale and more as a business decision. You got to take every offer seriously and, and uh, be willing to negotiate. So I certainly, um, I certainly think that's, that's great advice. And I think we're still in this adjusting period. Um, you know, everybody's got sticker shock on the rates at seven. I think, I looked today and we're at like 7.16 or something like that. Um, you know, I sold a lot of houses at 7% in 2005 through 2007 
or six and a half percent. And that was fine. Everybody was completely okay with that. Now, prices were a lot lower, but I mean, we're going to get to a point where, you know, five and a half or even six percent is going to start to look good. And we're going to get out of that mode where everybody is still thinking about that three or three and a half percent rate that we had a year ago. That That's probably not coming back anytime soon. So I think it takes a good kind of three to six months or even longer for everybody to adjust to a changing market. So um, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Um, so you gave some great advice. What's some other advice that you're giving to buyers and sellers right now to be successful in this market? Um, well, what you just said um, about the interest rates, it, it had me thinking about the buyers in June and July who decided to take a step back after the interest rates went up the first time. Um, and now, you know, the rates have gone up since then. And so, you know, I wish we did have a, a crystal ball and on what's going to happen. Cause you know, those, those June, July people who, who took the step back, I wish at that point we could have moved forward because they'd be in their homes right now and have an interest rate that's better than, than what we have right now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think for me, I look at it, I think you have to look at real estate in a lot of cases, especially for your average home buyer. Um, it's the long game. So right now, if you're looking at a house that you might only live in for one to two years, um, I'm pretty candid with people, you should not be buying a house right now. Because one, the market may drop even more from where we're at right now. And two, you know, in a normal market, it usually takes a solid two to three years of appreciation for you to hit that break even point to where you can go sell it and pay commissions and closing costs and expenses and come out ahead on the other side. And so I, I think home buyers that are looking at this kind of short time horizon in which they might be living at home need to really take a step back and maybe think about renting right now. But I think for those buyers that are looking that have at least three, if not a five to seven year plan or longer in a house. Um, I don't think you should be overly concerned about what's going to happen long-term because think back on this. And I think a, a good perspective to look at it on, if you talk to any homeowner that bought their house in 2007 and you talk to them in 2010 or 2011, they were already doing fine on that house that went through that bubble in the market falling and it went down in value and then it came back up. And as long as you are able to kind of withstand short-term market turbulence, it still makes for a great long-term investment. I think when we're buying, we need to be thoughtful about having multiple kind of exit strategies. So if you do have a job transfer or have to move, you should be, you should have an idea what your home can lease out for, or maybe it can be an Airbnb or, or you have multiple options for it. But I think people just need to understand that you know, this is, this is normal for the younger generation or for the first time home buyers out there. I, I understand this can be a really daunting experience to have to go through um, a market crash, especially in the age of social media now that we didn't have back in 2008 to where every, every time you pick up your phone, there's a new article that's talking about the real estate market. And it's mostly negative right now because that's what sells. But the reality of it is, is that real estate historically is going to be uh, one of, if not the safest investments you can make. And as long as you can hold on to the house long enough, history will show you're probably going to end up feeling pretty good about it. And I and I, I know you and I have talked a lot about 
the importance of working with a good real or working with a good lender, obviously working with a good realtor, but working with a, a good lender who's going to be able to educate you on, on rates and things like that. So why don't you kind of talk me through what your process is? Let's say if you're working with a first time home buyer, what are, what's some advice that you give them or what direction do you point them to first? Sure. Um, so my, my first recommendation is for any, anyone who even has in their mind at all to buy a house is to talk to a lender. Um, I've got a, a list of a few that I send out to everybody. And these are people who I know, who I have worked with, who I trust. Um, you know, I, I know them personally. They know me personally. I know they're not going to disappear on us halfway through the process. Um, but even if you think two years from now, you want to buy a house, like talk to a lender, they will help you create a roadmap for yourself, you know, put this amount of money each month into a savings account, work on this part of your credit, you know, it would be more beneficial to pay off your credit than to, to do something else. Um, even things like set your credit card monthly payment date to the, I think it's like the 10th of the month or something. There's a day of the month that you can pay that it helps boost your credit score more when that payment comes in. Um, and they know all of these tricks. Um, they can help get um, negative credit items off of your credit report. Um, they, you know, if you're self-employed, they can let you know you got to create a business plan. Um, you need to not report as big of a loss on your taxes if if you're running a business. You know, um, they can just do amazing things wh when you find the right person. Um, and they will be there with you every step of the way, you know, along with your real estate agent and the whole process. Um, but that lender is just such a huge piece. Um, they know, you know, hey, there's another rate hike coming in. We should lock it at this point. Um, just all kinds of good advice like that, that, you know, I'm not an expert in, in the mortgage business and I don't want to be an expert. Um, but different things like that. It's just so important to get the, the lender involved right away to help make the plan. Um, and then after you do all that, then it's time to go look at houses and, and scroll through Zillow and scroll, you know, scroll through all your online spots where you go look for houses. Um, but without that lender on board from the very beginning, it just, it puts you at a disadvantage from other, other buyers looking at the same houses. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think, um, I, I think one of the big differences that I'm seeing now compared to like 08, 09, when the market was crashing was um, the caliber of lenders that is out there now um, feels a lot different and a lot better. This could be a little bit of recency bias, but you know, for example, if you really look back on the history of it and the movie, The Big Short gave a really good example of this, but like what really cratered the market uh, back then was we had all those adjustable rate mortgages kicked in. Those were terrible loans. They were doing a really bad job of qualifying buyers. They were more focused on just figuring out what kind of monthly payment they wanted. And then they would finagle the loans to fit that, even if that adjustable rate was going to kick in down the road. They were just kind of kicking the can down the road of all those problems. And then ultimately it caught up to us in uh, 2008, you know? And so now um, we learn from a lot of our mistakes, um, both professionally and then even just through regulation. It's, it's much stricter guidelines right now to qualify for a loan. Um, more of a down payment is required. There's tighter restrictions on 
credit scores and debt to income ratios and things like that. And so now I feel like the lenders that we're working with now are just so much more well-informed and are able to articulate plans and things for the buyer. So I couldn't agree more. That's the most important first step. I know representing predominantly sellers, you know, we tell our sellers up front, you shouldn't even take an offer seriously if they can't present you with a quality pre-approval letter from a good lender. And when we look at that pre-approval letter, we should be able to see on there that the lenders already pulled credit, reviewed income, reviewed assets, and done all that good stuff. So as a buyer, um, you don't even stand really a chance of getting a house if you haven't started that step. And I do think getting that done a year, even two years in advance is, is a um, is a huge benefit to anybody who's thinking about buying a house. So I think even now more than ever, it's uh, it's super important. So I think that's fantastic advice. Um, so you, you talked a minute ago, obviously I know you don't have a crystal ball, but let's talk a little bit about our predictions for the rest of this year and kind of 2023. What are you, what are you seeing we have in the future? Um, you know, there, there are still people moving to Texas from, from other states. I won't say which states, um, we're seeing the most new Texans from, but, um, you know, there are still people moving here. There are still jobs being created. Um, and these people need a place to live when they get here. So um, I, I think that it, we're still going to see steady buyers moving into the market um, for rentals. Um, it's been kind of hit or miss for me. I have a few lease listings. Um People are still needing to find a place to rent. I was just out showing rental properties this morning to people moving from out of town. Um, and so people still need a place to live. So I don't think that it's necessarily going to come to a stop. Um, you know, people always have family changes, you know, new people moving in, people leaving the nest. Um, people have situations where they need to move their houses. Um, I just think people are being smarter. Uh, maybe more frugal, more budget-minded, especially with the rates going up, you know, keeping that monthly payment in mind, um, maybe not springing on the house with the pool. Maybe, you know, you you find a house with room for a pool for next year or two years from now. Um, just kind of being very careful about where that money goes. You know, maybe it's not the time for a vacation house. Maybe it's the time for an investment house if you've got money for a second home. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if I had been able to predict the, the craziness of last year, man, I, a few years ago, I would have been buying up as much property as I could. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, I talked a little bit about this on uh, our last podcast. Um, you know, Austin in particular is a really interesting market. I think the state of Texas as a whole is really strong. We came out relatively unscathed the last go around here in Austin. You know, Houston is a very energy dependent city. Um, so they took a little bit of a hit um, in 08, but bounced back pretty quickly. I, I think um, one thing you touched on that I think is really important to factor in is that here it's not all doom and gloom. Like we have seen this huge run up in value. And I think a lot of people look at that as saying, you know, that's got to create this bubble and, and all these values have to, have to crater out and bottom out. And I, and I, I do think there's a good possibility we'll see home values fall, at least to some degree. I don't think it's going to be as bad as a lot of people are predicting. Um, 
you know, we, uh, Mark Sprague, I was talking a little bit about him last time, you know, he predicted by 2025, we're actually not going to be able to keep up with the number of people that are moving to Austin. We will actually have a shortage of housing. So that's only a couple of years away. So, you know, the city really needs to focus on creating affordable housing options. And we still need to figure out how to grow to meet the demand for as many people that are moving here. It seems like there's another huge campus or business that's moving here uh, on a weekly basis. So, you know, those are all economic driving factors that keep a housing market strong and help us pull out of a correction faster than other markets that are maybe a little bit more dependent on, you know, vacation areas or things like that to where it's it's a predominantly a second home or a destination location. Uh, we're getting a lot of people that are moving here and relocating their businesses, their families and things like that. And that's always going to help drive demand. The other thing about Austin you have to consider is, you know, we are a we are a city that's been steadily growing for the past, gosh, 20 years, really. We have an anchor university. We're a state capital. We're a tech hub. Uh, we have a huge amount of infrastructure here. And so there's a lot of things that are going to keep our market stronger than than other locations. And then you look at Dallas and Houston and San Antonio, also great cities for businesses that are consistently relocating there. Um, this might not be in by 2025, but I, or for obviously next year, but, you know, Austin and San Antonio continue to kind of merge together that 35 corridor running between Austin and San Antonio that houses, you know, Kyle, Buda, San Marcos, Seguin, New Braunfels. It seems like the distance just keeps getting shorter and shorter. And I don't think it's outside of the realm of possibility that within the next, you know, seven to 10 years, Austin and San Antonio look a whole lot like Dallas and Fort Worth. Um, so we've got a tremendous amount of growth that's still happening here in Texas that does drive demand. I think we do have to tackle our affordability issues here. Um, it has been hard for first-time homebuyers for a long time. And now that interest rates have gone up, that makes it even more challenging. I think that's one of the things that's kind of going to be um, the possibility for driving down values is that affordability is just going to become a, a big challenge. But um, no, I I think it's going to be an interesting year, to say the least. Um, I, I just had a closing um, this month where it was um, the buyer was a, a business owner, which makes a complicated mortgage situation. Um, and he was able to use an FHA loan, which generally takes a little bit more time. Um, but a year ago, you know, a business owner with a complicated mortgage and an FHA loan, and it was on a manufactured home, um, like that just wouldn't have happened a year yeah. ago. There would have been no way. I totally agree. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, well, it's great. I, I, I think we're, we're, like I said, I think we're in for an interesting ride. Um, I think we are going to see sales decrease. I think less homes are just going to be sold. I think part of that is going to be, we're going to have buyers that are still kind of sitting on the sideline trying to find the bottom. I don't know if we're at the bottom yet. I think some will, some would argue that we are. I think we've got a little bit of little ways to go. Um, but I think we also have a lot of sellers sitting on the sidelines. So that's again, one of the big differences between now and 08. If you look back in 2008, we had this huge amount of inventory at the time. There were already a ton of homes on the market. I think when the market crashed, we were at somewhere in the neighborhood of a four to five month supply of inventory already. And then we had these wave of short sales and foreclosures that kind of piled on. I think the difference now is we have this huge shortage already. 
Um, and now you have a lot of sellers that are sitting on a, a nice home and they got a lot of equity and they don't necessarily need to sell. And they're just going to sit back on the sidelines and wait for the market to improve before they maybe trade up. Um, but I think one thing that a lot of sellers should be factoring in right now is, uh, you know, there's a saying in real estate that I think rings true for both investors and your average homeowner, home buyer. And that's, you know, in, in real estate, you make all your profit when you buy, not necessarily when you sell. And so you have a lot of people right now for home sellers. Yeah, you may feel like you're not doing quite as well on the home that you're selling. And that that might be a concern, but what if you can get a smoking deal on the house that you're going to buy, and it's a deal that you haven't been able to get for the last one to two years that now all of a sudden can get that home that you know was going for 100K over asking price a year ago, and now you can actually negotiate the price down and get a better deal on it. That's a scenario where I can see it's smart to uh, maybe sell your home and pick a time to trade up. And then use things like rate buy-down options that all these lenders are working to try to get creative with these high interest rates to where you can get the seller to cover some of your closing costs and buy down your rate for you until you get to a point where you might be in a better spot to refinance for your kind of long-term uh, mortgage rate. So I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of interesting possibilities that people can still do as long as they're staying educated and informing themselves of, of good strategies. Uh, all right, so before we finish up, this is probably my favorite question. So what are some crazy, funny, horror stories? What are some, in the last five years of you being in real estate, what are some of the craziest things you've experienced so far? Um, so uh, on the first house I ever had under contract for a buyer. Um, so anytime I have a house under contract, I'm always like Googling the address to see if it's like, I don't know, haunted or whatever. Um, and so I was Googling the address and the house pops up on this auction site, like auction.com. Um, and it says it's up for foreclosure auction. So I call the listing agent and call the title company. No one seems very concerned. Um, and so a couple days later, I go back to the site and see that it's sold. The house sold at foreclosure auction. Um, and we were, my, you know, my buyer was supposed to close on it. And so I, again, called the listing agent, called the title company. Um, and apparently the seller had stopped paying their mortgage payment and the house sold at foreclosure auction. So we um, had to go back on the house hunt and uh, buyers didn't get their house that they wanted. Yeah. Um, they did find a better one. So, you know, they always, they always find a better one. If one falls through, you find a better one. Um, but it was just crazy how that happened. Never, never a dull moment. I, I've, I've been fortunate or maybe unfortunate to have experienced some wild stories. Um, we were talking about one. I, I had one the day before closing. We were doing a final walkthrough and uh, we came to find out the toilet, the tank in the toilet bowl had a hairline crack that opened up. And the day before closing, there was about three inches of water that filled up the house and flooded the entire house. Luckily, we had a really motivated buyer and a really motivated seller, and they we pushed back for like three weeks, and they had to cut out sheetrock, replace all the cabinets. So my buyers ended up actually getting practically a new house, so it actually worked out kind of in their favor. But the sellers, as you can imagine, didn't love getting that phone call. We literally walked into the house and took a step through the front door and just splashed our feet onto the ground. There was about two or three inches of water. And so uh, my clients were freaking out because they'd already sold their house, and they needed a place to go. So they had to... 
Airbnbs weren't a thing yet. So gosh, I'm trying to, I think they had to move all their stuff into storage and, and like stay with parents and stuff. Um, so that was a, that was a wild one. And then, um, man, I'm trying to think there's, there's always been, this wasn't me personally, but I have a good friend of mine that right, he and I got in the business together around the same time. And he was actually a lender. And um, when you're at a closing, you might remember that there's a document you signed and it's known as like the alias affidavit to where, you know, a lot of people, they have their name on their driver's license. But then if you've been married, you have a maiden name and this and that. So it's a document that lists out all of your names that you have been known by at some point in your life. And, and a lot of times those will be what are show up on a credit report, things like that. And so this guy was, um, was buying this house with his fiance and they get to this document. And, uh, it was a, I say older guy, I was going to say he's in his forties, but I'm, I'm in my forties. So that doesn't seem too old now, but, um, he gets to that page and his fiance's side of that document has five different names on it and, or four names or something like that, a bunch of names. And so he's, he's like, where, what are all these names coming from? And at that moment, he comes to realize that, um, he's about to be this woman's fifth husband. And he had no idea up until that point, she hadn't told him. And so she had been married numerous times before him and, um, and she wasn't going to tell him she had no plans on t letting him know about that. And, um, and that killed the deal right there at that moment. He stormed out. He never came back. The deal didn't close. And that was my buddy. It was either his first or second loan he ever did. That was like his introduction into real estate lending. And so, uh, whenever I'm in a closing and I see that document, it's always funny. I have to tell that story because, uh, I just can't imagine how awkward it was. I can't imagine how awkward it was for the, for the closing, uh, the escrow officer who was signing them that day, but yep, killed the deal. Um, and, um, beyond that, the only other stories that I have that are, that are funny or horror stories are, are, are probably stories I, I can't or shouldn't say on this podcast. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that. But, uh, I, th I thought mine was bad. I have I had a credit card in like, I don't know, like 2003 or something. And it had my name as Nellen. And so now every time I see those forms, well, it's funny. It's just, you just can't get away with anything these days. And so, uh, yeah, I always felt really bad for that guy, but in hindsight, he probably dodged the, a bullet there. Yeah. Right? He so, definitely. Uh, yeah. yeah. But look at the, look at the, uh, I'm guessing though, if that was in probably, that was probably 2006 or 2007. So I bet he's wishing he probably bought that house. He, he probably just should have bought it maybe without, without her. Cause he probably would have done pretty well on it. But, um, now that, that, that story always cracks me up. Well, it's hard to believe we're at, we're at 30 minutes. So we're going to jump into, I always like to do a little bit of Q and a, and we, we actually have a great question. So Tara asked, are there still any, uh, first time home buyer perks that you know of? That's a, a lender question. <laughs> I know, uh, I talked to somebody from rocket mortgage um a couple weeks ago and they seem like they have some programs available for first-time home buyers but then i talked to a local lender and they said that they also have any any program that rocket has they said they can match um yeah. and so i think that there are some things available out there 
Um, I was looking into it. Houston's got some some crazy good benefits for um, low income home buyers, first time home buyers. Like they've got a lot of stuff for the city of Houston um, yeah. that I wish we had here to help out with that aspect. Yeah. And, and so, Tara, that's a fantastic question. I think that's an important question that any buyer should ask is, especially first-time homebuyers, a lot of times there are programs. There's uh, down payment assistance programs. Um, we've worked with a lot of great lenders over the years that offer down payment assistance. And those are kind of niche products because they're not easy loans and they're they can be challenging. They require some legwork up front by both the home buyer and the lender. But if you can find a willing buyer who's willing to put in the work, like sometimes some of these um, uh, down payment assistance programs actually require you to take a, like a home buyer responsibility course and jump through a few hoops to get it. But I, um, I have personally helped, gosh, um, over a dozen first time home buyers get into a home with at or very close to zero down through a combination of down payment assistance negotiating in a credit to go towards the buyer's closing costs. So it, what a lot of buyers don't realize right now is that a home seller can actually give you a credit that you can work into the offer, work into the contract, and it'll cover up to all of your closing costs. So it can't eat into your down payment. Um, like if you're doing an FHA loan, that's three and a half percent down. So the seller can't give you a credit that will go above your closing costs and eat into that down payment. But what a lot of a lot of times we would do is we would do a down payment assistance program that would cover their entire down payment. It covers up to 4%. And then we would get a credit from the seller for the remaining amount. And they could walk to the table and they would actually get a check back at closing because they did an earnest money and an option fee deposit up front. And so they would literally have a check get handed to them at closing for a couple thousand bucks. And I have personally seen that happen. And I think getting in touch with the right lenders that are going to be able to help you. We can certainly point you in the right direction there. We've got some great lenders that we work with. Uh, so Tara, I, I know there are absolutely some programs that exist out there and then simply having good strategies when you're negotiating a contract can always help as well. And right now we're actually telling all of our sellers, get super creative. You need to, you need to make a deal work any way you can. And so what we're seeing right now is, you know, a year ago, um, like saying the words FHA or VA was a, almost like a curse word when it came to being a home buyer. And that's, I think, terrible because I think VA loans are amazing loans for veterans. They're zero down. They have so many perks, but they come with a lot of stigma behind it because um, they can be a little bit more challenging. There are a few things you got to go through to get to the finish line. And so sellers had the ability to kind of say, oh, I really only want to see cash or conventional and you got to be able to cover all this stuff. And I, I think VA and FHA buyers had a really tough time. And now we're just seeing sellers that are like, I just need to sell my house. Bring me a, bring me a workable deal. I'll make it work. I'll get creative. I'll offer you a credit. I'll help buy down your rate. And we are advising our sellers to get super creative in the way that they're structuring and negotiating their deals. So if you're a motivated buyer, you're looking to to make something work, we can get super creative and put you in a spot to where as a first time home buyer, we can uh, bring as little to the table as possible. So great, great question. Um, okay, Chuck's got a question. I've heard people talking about offering buyer credits at closing. Can you share your thoughts on that? Yeah, so 
great, great question, Chuck. So that kind of feeds exactly into what I was talking about. So what that means is uh, there's a there's a section on the contract, and in Texas, we have to use what are called promulgated contracts. And what that means is these contracts are made by the Texas Real Estate Commission or the Texas Association of Realtors. And we as realtors and brokers have to use these contracts. We're required to use them because they're standardized contracts. And in these contracts, there's a section um, where the seller can offer a credit that goes towards the buyer's closing costs. And in this section, you can work with your lender and find out what is going to be the total amount of your closing costs. And you can actually get that number up so you can work in a way to buy down your interest rate and lower your monthly payment. And so typically lenders will allow, I believe, the seller to credit up to 3% as a credit to go towards the buyer's closing costs, which is usually going to be more than enough to cover it. So let's say you're buying a $400,000 house, that would be $12,000 as a credit, which is 3%. And so as long as the calculus works out for the seller, they're looking at their net and their bottom line, or at least that's what they should be looking at. You should not should be looking less about your purchase price or sales price. And you should be looking more at like, what are your net proceeds? And that, as long as that meets what you're looking for as a seller, you should get creative on how you're structuring that deal to make it work for a wider variety of buyers. Uh, it's a great question. Yeah. Um, we had another question. So what are some things that sellers can do to be creative and make their listing more attractive? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Ellen, I'm gonna let you take that one. <laughs> um, so some things that, you know, updating the kitchen, usually kitchen is the number one thing. The number one comment, as soon as a buyer walks into the house, the, the kitchen is usually the first thing that they see. Um, painting the cabinets if they need painted um some light kitchen staging um kitchen i would think is the number one thing that i would recommend um if you're getting your listing ready um price is obviously a huge factor in whether or not people are even going to walk in the door um but also putting in your listing that you are willing to offer buyer credits at closing or help with rate buy down, um, you know, putting those buzzwords in the listing will help you pop up in the search if somebody's looking for a seller who can offer that closing assistance. Yeah, no, I think that's all great advice. The one thing I would add is um, as a seller, just get rid of all your crap, you know, declutter. So use your garage. Uh, you're going to notice that in 99% of real estate pictures online, you don't see a picture of the garage because smart sellers are loading their garage up or their storage unit with all of those things that they don't really need. And so when you're selling your house, again, you should be, you should be okay with being inconvenienced for a period of time to maximize on your investment. And I know we all wanna be comfortable and we've got a, a lot of times live in the house while we're selling it, but, being uncomfortable to make your house look more presentable is going to net you a, a, a higher price in the end. And so um, anything that you walk around your house and it looks like it's taking up space that doesn't need to be there makes your house look smaller, makes it look more un unaccessible. Um, and so what you want to do is you want to look at, okay, what um, positions every room in the best light, what makes it seem spacious? 
what is the average home buyer going to walk in and see in this house that's going to that's going to be appealing to them and then if it doesn't fit in that box get rid of it take it out of the house um and so i i'd say decluttering is a big one a lot of times you can find a staging company that will do like a consultation and they'll work with your existing furniture they might bring in some supplemental pieces for you to use and i mean google's your friend um you know we wrote a blog article just about you know ways that tips and tricks on how to stage your house so do some research online um i totally agree doing a cost-effective facelift paint is the cheapest and easiest way to freshen up your house so if you've got a little bit of time and energy you know paint over those walls that your average home buyer wouldn't buy uh would, wouldn't have wouldn't have painted so i think those are all ways you can you can gear up and get your house ready Okay, we got another good one here. Do you think that this Q4 will be better than it historically has been because buyers don't want to risk rates going up any further? That's a really good question. Um, I wish I had a crystal ball to be able to answer that question. I think it's possible that that happens. I, I think um, typically the way the market cycles work, and we actually saw this at the beginning of COVID. You know, when COVID hit, I think everybody expected the global economy was going to crater. You know, we were going to go into this deep global recession. And then within about two to three weeks, we realized, well, that's actually not happening. And we had this kind of shot to the market. And then there's a little bit of social proof that happens. People start making, you know, jumping off the fence and, and buying. And then they started realizing like, oh crap, I'm about to be stuck in my house for a long time. My house sucks. I need a better house. I need to get out of my apartment. I need to upgrade. I need to you know, and so it just took a little bit of momentum from everybody to kind of kick us out of that lull we were in the beginning of COVID. And I think this is going to be um, similar. I think what brings us out of this is that, you know, when we start to hit the bottom, we're going to be in this phase to where everybody's waiting to get some kind of proof that we're there. And then there's some glimmer of hope that picks us out the other side. That could be us finally getting a handle on inflation and and um, we start to see interest rates fall again, which allows monthly payments to get a little bit more enticing to buyers. And then they've been sitting around waiting for that to happen and they start to jump. And then some home buyers see other home buyers moving and then that gives them enough confidence to jump back into the market. It could be sellers um, starting to put their house on the market that and that may happen may not happen Q4. It may start to happen when we start to see the seasonal uptick next year. So it could be like February, March of next year. I think we have a shot of actually sellers kind of this winter opposed to others saying, I'm going to sit on the sidelines and I'm going to try to wait until I see some better signs of life before I list my house. And the reality of it is that may actually mean it's a better time than ever for you to sell your house. Because when we're looking at real estate and we're thinking about doing things, you know, personally for ourselves, we need to be looking at microeconomics, not macroeconomics. So if I'm looking at, if I'm thinking about selling my house, I don't really care what, what's happening 30 miles down the road in somebody else's neighborhood. If I look at my neighborhood and there's no houses on the market and I know there's still some demand and the houses that are getting listed are going under contract, to me, that's all the information I need to say, this is a good time for me to sell because houses are selling. If your neighborhood has a sea of inventory and there's 20 actives and for every 20 actives, there's only two pendings, 
and you, you know, I might be, it might take me a while to get my house sold and I need to be prepared for that. Maybe I'll sit on the sidelines until some of this inventory sells off and it's better condition. So I, I think the short answer is, I, I think depending on where you're at, all of those possibilities can and will happen um, because real estate in general is, is very micro. And I think it's easy to get stuck on the macroeconomics and look what's happening nationally or even within your city as a whole. But that's not really necessarily going to pertain to you personally, depending on what you're looking to accomplish. So I think getting with a really great realtor uh, like Ellen and having her figure out, are you looking to buy? What's a good neighborhood for you to buy in? What fits you know, your wish list? And then make a decision and decide, is this a good time? Or, or maybe we should wait and let things uh, maybe settle down a little bit more. So having somebody who knows what they're doing and can talk you through that is uh, really important, I think. Yeah. Okay. We got another, man, we got some good questions today. What would you say to a seller who does not want to accept the market slowing down and still expects their house to sell just as fast as it would have six months ago? Man, speaking my language, we're, we're dealing with that in a lot of, scenarios right now. So what are, what are your thoughts on that, uh, Ellen? So in short, a, a seller that just won't accept the situation that they're in right now. I mean, I, I guess once it's listed and you see, you see what happens is, is what I would recommend. I mean, if you have a price that you want to get, you list it at that price. If you don't get any showing for the first two or three weeks, it's on the market. Like, that's kind of your answer, I guess. I feel like I, I'm not good at telling people stuff. Um, I would rather they um, figure it out for themselves. Um, you know, you can show them, show people what's on the market, show them how long houses are taking to go under contract. You know, you can look at the data, but sometimes people just have to see it for themselves. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think my first reaction is, one, show them the data. Everybody should be making, in real estate, everybody should be making very data-driven decisions because the data doesn't lie. It doesn't care about how you feel or what your emotions are, or what you want to get out of your house. It's going to tell you the real story no matter what. And the seller is either going to uh, agree with your interpretation of that data or they're not. And I do think there are certain scenarios where it's okay to, to kind of let somebody fail because they're not going to... Uh, it, that's what it takes to get them to understand and believe what you're saying. And then a lot of times that what that will be what softens them up to ultimately make the right decision. And maybe that's a, a improving their price or, you know, whatever, whatever other advice that you're trying to get them to, to do. And they just didn't believe you or didn't want to do it on their own. I think having them kind of fail a little bit on their own, or if they're going to make their decisions, make sure that you're maybe saying, okay, let's cut a deal. Well, let's say your price, and if you don't have a contract and we haven't sold at that price by this date, we're going to do this. I think the only problem with that, and sometimes you have to also make people understand that in real estate, the one thing you don't want to be doing is what we call chasing down the market. And that means as a seller, you're just one continuously one step behind everybody else or behind the market. And it's like every price drop you do is a little bit too little and it's a little too late. And if you would have done it a little bit sooner and done it for maybe a little bit more then the buyer who bought your neighbor's house would have bought your house, but you didn't because you were stubborn and you were late. And so you end up doing what we call chasing down the market, which is really the worst strategy in real estate and usually costs you more money than you're ever going to make. Um, 
my advice generally for sellers, especially in a market that is has a little bit of turbulence in it, is um, shy away from the strategy to where you overprice your house and try to work in that negotiating room. Um, that almost never works. It almost never works because you just look way overpriced. You look unreasonable. You look completely out of touch with what's happening in the market. And the buyers are like, man, that's a crazy price. That means the seller is probably crazy. And I'm probably not going to be able to make a deal with it. I'm just going to pass. I'm not even going to go look at the house. I'm going to look at the, the neighbor's house or the one down the street that's more reasonably priced and I feel confident I can make a deal on. And all you end up doing is kind of shooting yourself in the foot. So I, I think personally, the better strategy is look at the data, be a little bit more aggressive on your price. I'd rather be priced middle of the neighborhood, not top of the neighborhood and get a contract a little bit quicker because, I mean, you got to factor in if you're living in the house, okay. But if you're not, and you've moved, you've moved out already, you have carrying costs, cost you money every day that you own that house that you're not living in it. And you need to be factoring that in when you're, when you're making those decisions. So, um, that was a great question. Um, man, that was some strong Q and a, that was about 20 minutes of Q and a. So we're coming up on, on almost an hour. And so I appreciate everybody for joining us. Those are some awesome, uh, questions. Ellen, it was great having you. Uh, I appreciate all of that valuable insight. If anybody uh, has any questions for Ellen or wants to get a hold of you, Ellen, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Um, I can put my my phone number in the in the chat at the end, I guess. Um, but um, you know, if you Google me, my name, my number will pop up. Email. I'm always around. Perfect. All right. Well, everybody, thanks for joining us. This is episode five of Real Estate Real Fast. We go live typically Wednesdays at one o'clock. So we'll be looking forward to seeing everybody on the next episode. And thanks again for joining us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Real Estate Real Fast. If you're a homeowner or real estate investor, you should go check us out at listingspark.com. You can find tips for improving and selling your house, comparing properties, listing your home on the MLS, and even sign up for the live show of Real Estate Real Fast. We typically go live on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Central. Go check us out at listingspark.com.